Welcome to the CMAJ podcast. In this episode... Of course, a big issue for Indigenous families is that because of colonial policies, Indigenous pregnant people often don't have options to birth close to home. This has particular relevance for First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people who are actually being born where you're from because the land is a relative. Um, if you have to move away from where you're from, it's like leaving a very important relative out of the birth experience. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Interim Editor-in-Chief of CMAJ. A new research study has used data from the Canadian Maternity Experiences Survey to look at how far pregnant people travel to give birth in Canada, and to look specifically at differences between Indigenous peoples and the general Canadian population with regard to travel for birth. With me today to discuss the striking findings of their research, the problems that these findings highlight, and the potential solutions to the disparities that they noted, are authors Janet Smiley, a family practitioner and professor of public health, and Evelyn George, a registered midwife. But first, a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Bill. Dr. Bill makes billing on the go easy and pain-free. Add a patient in as little as three seconds and submit a claim with just a few taps. Start your 45-day free trial today. Visit drbill.app slash cmaj, that's d-r-b-i-l-l dot a-p-p slash cmaj to get started. Many adults may not be aware that simply being over 50 puts them at increased risk for shingles. Help prevent shingles in patients over 50 with Shingrix. Shingrix is indicated for the prevention of herpes zoster HZ or shingles in adults 50 years of age or older. Consult the product monograph at gsk.ca slash Shingrix slash PM for contraindications, warnings, and precautions, adverse reactions, interactions, dosing, and administration information. To request a product monograph or to report an adverse event, please call 1-800-387-7374. Learn more at thinkshingrix.ca. Janet and Evelyn, thank you so much for joining us on the CMAJ podcast today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for the invitation. I'm going to ask you to tell our listeners a little bit about who you are. Sure. So uh, Janet Smiley, um, I'm a Métis Cree woman with a long and broken maternal kin line of mixed ancestry. My uh, paternal kin lines um, route back to Ireland, County Down Ireland is where the Smileys came from and we're six generation settlers. I've been a family doctor and practicing medicine across geographies and contexts since 2003. After about five years of practicing family medicine, I went back um, and did a master's in public health. And since then, I've had an increasingly research-focused career. Currently, I'm a professor in the Dalana School of Public Health and the Faculty of Medicine, Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Advancing Generative Health Services for Indigenous Populations in Canada, and also the Director of the Well Living House Action Research Centre and an active staff physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Evelyn, could you tell us about you? My name is Evelyn George. I'm a Nibising Anishinaabe Kwe from Nipissing First Nation on my dad's side and French-Canadian on my mom's side. And I'm a non-practicing registered midwife living in Seal Territory in BC, in a community called Simpinkton. I'm a community engagement lead for NACM, National Aboriginal Council of Midwives, and I work closely with Indigenous communities and nations working to restore birth and midwifery. And I am also Indigenous student coordinator for the UBC Midwifery program where I work closely with Indigenous midwifery students. 
Now, we're discussing this really interesting study that you've conducted on the distance that women travel to give birth and how that's different for Indigenous women versus those of the general community. Can you tell me a little bit about why you wanted to study this? Sure. Actually, I had the fortune of being involved with the Canadian Maternity Experiences Survey since its inception. Um, And when we were done the study and we were trying to think about what kinds of analyses would be relevant and useful for First Nations, Inuit and Métis people, we asked various First Nations, Inuit and Métis and national Indigenous organizations. And uh, we in particular worked with the Native Women's Association of Canada, um, who has representatives on this paper as well. And of course, a big issue for Indigenous families is that because of colonial policies, Indigenous pregnant people often don't have options to birth close to home. This has particular relevance for First Nations, Inuit and Métis people were actually being born where you're from because the land is a relative. Um, If you have to move away from where you're from, it's like leaving a very important relative out of the birth experience. Um, And for Indigenous peoples, of course, we have a lot of diversity, um, but I'm not aware of an Indigenous community where it isn't very important to be birthing close um, to home or on the land where you're from. So the Native Women's Association of Canada, we had some emerging qualitative evidence that was showing that this historic and ongoing colonial policy was harmful to Indigenous peoples, Indigenous identity, Um, causing a breakdown in our web of relations, very stressful, practically stressful, because children were then having to be left with caregivers who weren't their birth parents. Um, Mothers were often having to travel without any family or partners. So they wanted us to take this opportunity to understand quantitatively how common this was. It was a community-identified priority. That's a good approach in Indigenous research. Unfortunately, even when we have strong evidence through our community members, of course, it's the numbers that um, will be acceptable to policy. So this gave us an opportunity to do a rigorous scientific study that would support the much needed policy change and actually quantify our hypothesis that the maternity care services in rural areas, um, our hypothesis was that they were disproportionately nearer and set up closer to non-Indigenous communities. So in the beginning of your answer, you talked about the data instruments that you used. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the survey? Yeah, so the Canadian Maternity Experiences Survey um, is the one and only comprehensive maternity experiences survey that uh, we have in Canada. And actually it happened in 2006, 2007. So we're very much overdue for another one. And in fact, uh, in our recommendations, we're talking about the need even for indigenous specific reproductive health surveys. This survey actually did include several hundred First Nations and Métis women. It excluded First Nations mothers living on reserve, um, which is a strong reason why we need a repeat survey. It was designed by a multidisciplinary group of people um, under the umbrella of the Canadian Perinatal Surveillance System. And I was a a member of that group, which uh, was part of the Public Health Agency of Canada at that time. 
um, and we designed a survey, a comprehensive survey to better understand maternity experiences for pregnant people in Canada. Um, and we interviewed parents who had uh, given birth. The maternity experience survey itself interviewed mothers. Um, so I think it was actually defined as mothers at that time in 2005, 2006, who had had infants that were living with them three months before the 2006 Canadian census. And the mothers were actually um, interviewed then when their infants were between the ages of five months to 14 months. And Evelyn, different birthing options for people living in rural Canada, what do they look like? Well, I guess it depends on where you are. And our study has shown that it also depends on who you are. But we know that increasingly maternity services have been leaving the smaller rural areas and people have been needing to leave to, to go to the urban areas to have um, reproductive health services and particularly around birth services. There aren't a whole lot of options. We know that in, in different parts of the country, family physicians are more active in providing uh, maternity care and in some places not so much. In some parts of the country there are midwifery practices that are located rurally where that might be an option and in other parts of the country midwifery practices are quite scarce and especially in rural communities can be very far um, distances from one another. So it can it just really depends on where you are. Yes, um, it really does depend on where you live and that was kind of our hypothesis was then that it will be privileging non-Indigenous Canadian-born people living in rural areas, which actually was our comparison group. So we compared um, Indigenous people to non-Indigenous Canadian-born population, just because we know people who have immigrated to Canada more recently have different um, birth outcomes. In terms of access to service, the options in rural areas, are community-based midwifery, but that's not available in all rural areas. It's probably only available in the minority of rural areas. And then to give birth in like a birth center or a hospital. So as family physicians, um, we're trained to attend births at birth centers and in hospitals. Um, midwives are trained to attend births at homes, in birth centers and in hospitals. Um, one thing for all women living in rural areas is that your opportunities to be born outside of a larger urban center might be limited by any complications you might have in the current or um, previous pregnancies. One of the things we were able to do in this study, because the data set was large enough, because I think there's often an assumption that the reason Indigenous women more often have to have birth experiences far from home is because they have more medical complications. But in fact, we were able to control for medical complications and show that once medical complications were taken into account, they were still much more likely to give birth away from home compared to non-Indigenous Canadian-born women living in rural areas. Do you want to give us a kind of broad overview of the things that you found in this study? Yes. As I mentioned, our hypothesis going in was that Indigenous women would more often have to travel for birth compared to non-Indigenous Canadian-born women. When we looked at what was happening in urban areas, in fact, there was um, just very small numbers because, of course, um, there's lots of options for birthing in urban areas. They're not all culturally safe, um, but uh, 
when midwives, family doctors, and uh, birthing centers exist, um, they're most commonly existing in urban centers. So we focused on rural and remote areas um, with the limitation that the maternity experience survey excluded First Nations women living on reserve. What we found in the study, so our study results, actually, I never imagined. I knew there would be a disparity, but I never imagined that the disparity would be so extreme, particularly since we weren't including First Nations women on reserve because to exclude them would actually moderate the effect, right? Because um, there's very few First Nations on reserve communities that have a birthing facility or a hospital there. So by definition, moms would have to travel. So what we actually found is that Indigenous women were more than five times more likely to have to travel 200 kilometers for birth compared to non-Indigenous mothers. And as I mentioned, though, a common assumption is the reason why that happens is because Indigenous mothers might have higher rates of medical complication in pregnancy. So then what we did was what's called an adjusted analysis. Um, and then even more strikingly, we found that when we took into account medical complications of pregnancy, the result was even stronger. Indigenous women were 16 times more likely to have to travel more than 200 kilometers for birth compared to non-Indigenous Canadian-born women living in, in rural areas. By that time, our numbers were getting a little small. Um, so the 95% confidence interval is 8 to 33 times. But that was much higher, and it's extremely striking um, to see that disparity in a rigorous quantitative study. So you're looking not across the board, you're looking at people who live in rural areas, and this great discrepancy holds for only people who live in rural areas. It is very, very striking. Yeah, with respect to this striking disparity, I think um, it's an important finding because often what we hear about, and I see that Indigenous health gets conflated with rural health, because of course, for all families in rural regions, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, um, there's fewer hospitals, um, fewer midwives, fewer family docs, and fewer specialists and birth facilities per capita. But here we see that actually it may not be appropriate to be conflating rural health inequities and Indigenous health inequities in rural areas, um, because as often happens, there's an intersection happening so that Indigenous people living in rural areas actually are experiencing like a synergistic disadvantage. So it will be very important moving forward to not conflate Indigenous health disparities in rural areas with more general rural health disparities. We need to actually look very specifically at these striking Indigenous health disparities. And I think, too, when we see the results of this and see how extreme the disparity is, and then we think, well, that doesn't include people from on reserve, which is going to add to that also. But it also doesn't include people who are incarcerated or people who had had their babies apprehended. And we know that in those populations, we have an overrepresentation of Indigenous people as well. And so take that number that already looks extreme and, and add to it and add to it and add to it again. And it's very striking. Evelyn, you make an, an important point there that Janet raised as well, that this is very likely an underestimate of the discrepancy because the population of this study is, is fairly limited. That speaks to some of the challenges and barriers to studying this question. Perhaps you could talk about those a little bit. 
So the opportunity was the Canadian Maternity Experience Survey. Um, and the survey itself was actually committed to um, specifically looking at the birth experiences of Canadian youth, as well as First Nations, Inuit and Métis people. But the first challenge and barrier was even though it would be very important to get samples that were large enough so we could understand across diversities, the specific experiences of First Nations, Inuit and Métis women. So that would have required an oversampling of First Nations, Inuit and Métis women. And even though that was a stated study objective at the time, a policy decision was made not to oversample First Nations, Inuit and Métis women. So we're not adequately powered to give us the data that we actually need um, to respond. So we know that there's this big disparity but we do not know, you know, um, is this a problem mostly for Inuit women and First Nations women, or is it a problem mostly for Métis women because it's not adequately powered to disaggregate the data. So the Indigenous sample was inadequate. Another barrier is that just the way that um, a lot of the surveys are structured that come out of Statistics Canada, they build on a census sample. So we know, at least for First Nations Inuit and Métis living in urban and related geographies, for example, uh, only one out of four or only one out of five Indigenous people does the census. Um, I'm imagining there's under participation in rural and remote areas as well. And actually, it would be a biased under participation because the people who are participating will be different than the people who don't participate. In order to participate, you need to feel safe picking up the phone and answering it when Stats Canada or the federal government gives you a call. We did try to mitigate some of these things. Um, we had the opportunity for people to have interpreters, um, but still even um, it would require you to have a phone, which is something that um, we don't take for granted in First Nations, Inuit and Métis communities where there's um, disproportionate socioeconomic challenge. So one opportunity, because a challenge also just is the way that traditional quantitative epi methods work, they often leave out Indigenous ideas, paradigms, and perspectives. Um, but actually, I feel good about this study, um, and I'm interested to hear what Evelyn thinks as well. But I think what we've tried to do is bring an Indigenous lens, Indigenous paradigm to a quantitative epidemiologic study. So, of course, as First Nations Inuit and Métis people, I'm a Métis woman, but where I come from, we were empiricists. To live on the land, you have to be an expert at empirical observation and tracking because we were surviving on the land. So here we tried to actually ground this study as much as we could in Indigenous processes. So for example, coming up with a question that was prioritized by Indigenous community and show that we can use quantitative methods and we always have as Indigenous people as a way of understanding and uh, then planning for better health and well-being in our communities. So like, what is the experience of birthing? How far are people having to travel? If we can quantify that, then we can plan, you know, what kind of services. And I imagine our midwives traditionally and healers would have done that as well, even just to survive. How big is our community, right? How many babies are being born this year? Do we need to move our community somewhere else where there's um, more food to support us because um, there's changes in this environment? From my perspective, um, living on reserve with the, the way that, you know, relationships exist in kind of our colonial context, 
Um, you know, there are some real barriers there around trust and like what Janet says around, you know, picking up the phone and then continuing a conversation on the phone and being willing to, to share information that can be very difficult for people to, to talk about in the first place. I see, you know, that being a challenge and I would love to see a future study where we can kind of go about this study from beginning to end in terms of the data collection, um, you know, from an Indigenous perspective, because I think that people will potentially be much more open in sharing. You were talking a little bit about how the study question here for this quantitative study came out of other work that you had done. And I'm curious to know whether that work elicited understandings of how difficult it is for Indigenous women to travel for birthing. Yeah, so of course, um, Evelyn and I have attended births in diverse contexts, um, but I'm sure as any person who's part of a family who's had to experience the impact of traveling for birth far away from home, it's scary, right? I used to even find it scary. So I've worked in um, rural and remote First Nations and Métis communities um, for good parts of my career. Even when I was a family physician, I used to find it scary when I had to walk into the obstetric ward at the Health Science Centre in Winnipeg, right? All of a sudden, I went from being one of the most important people in the hierarchy to disposable. Imagine how the patient feels. And as I mentioned at the beginning, there's that added component then, not only of leaving behind your family members, because there's like, uh, it's only very recently um, that we had reversed uh, federal policy that did not fund partners or supportive family members to travel with women, right? We know Winnipeg Health Science Centre is where Brian Sinclair was left to die in the emergency room. So we know it's the exception that Indigenous people actually have a good experience at an urban hospital versus that they are treated in a discriminatory manner. So, and then there's the added thing that now you're being taken away, not only from your human relatives, but from the land base, which is also an equally, um, or perhaps even more foundational relative. And then for families that have multiple kids, you might be in your labor actually worrying about who's taking care of your kids. Um, because we've had generations of family disruption, right? And and part of the legacy of that is there isn't always reliable people at home um, to provide those supports. So I think that's like a terrible context in which to give birth, this combination of having to anticipate and be fearful of attitudinal and systemic racism in a hospital, to be isolated from the other humans in your life, to have to worry about the health and safety of your children, and then to be torn away from the lands um, where your people have lived for generations, something that actually we've shown in other work more recently, that relationship to land um, for Indigenous people actually is something that promotes health. Um, So yeah, if you tried to plan like a, it's almost like a perfect storm of how to activate people, get our systems working in ways that are going to actually undermine a safe labor. If we're talking about kind of the impact of traveling for birth, you know, it's, it's very profound. And I think as healthcare providers, we're always placing it in the lens of the birthing person and we're always focusing on them. And there is definitely multiple layers of trauma that occur for that person 
but also like they don't exist in a vacuum. They exist within families and communities. And those people have an impact also from that person being removed for that amount of time, um, for however long it is. For some people, it's a few days. For other people, it can be over a month, depending on where you're traveling from. At the community level and in the, at the family level, this is it's really lived out as an experience of family separation. And using the words family separation is important when we talk about Indigenous health because of history and because of the impacts that it has intergenerationally and the, the colonial context around it. I think it's important to frame just saying that. And we know that, you know, that those stress responses interfere with bonding and attachment. And we know that those all kinds of things can be happening in families. There's never an easier, good time to, to leave a family for an extended period of time, you know, for any family. Um, but like what Janet was saying around, you know, our family context, um, it can be really difficult to start with. And it can be really challenging for some people to find care for their children over that uh, length of time that they can feel comfortable and safe about. Um, with the escorts, with, with, you know, companions for birth, even that, you know, it does support birthing person for sure. And there are advantages there, but it's also really difficult because that's not paid time off. Right. And, you know, people find it really difficult even to go for short amounts of time. And so it, it really ends up that we just really need to have birth closer to home. We really need to have birth on territory um, within our family circles, within our kinship circles, within our communities, um, because that's where we can be intact as people. You outlined at the beginning that this is um, quantitative research to highlight a problem, but what's really needed is some solutions. And um, you've picked up on a few there. What do you see as the next steps out of this work? Well, I think that um, we've had some huge successes in particular uh, parts of the country with community-based Indigenous midwifery returning birth to communities. Um, and, and of course, the examples that you could maybe look up are the examples in Nunavik in Northern Quebec. Um, and also Six Nations is well known for restoring birth in their community in a community-based way. And when we say community-based, we mean kind of community-owned. Um, the foundation is a, a cultural foundation and is placed geographically within that community also. And we've had huge successes. Indigenous midwives have important skill sets and um, knowledge bases and competencies that are really important in restoring birth um, to communities. And communities are safer when there are more care providers in them um, and not just visiting. And we know for remote communities, that's often the case um, that people are kind of in and out and the people themselves who are receiving care are also in and out of the community. It's very disruptive. Um, and we have just really strong examples of how this can still work. And, you know, when we think back to, you know, how did we come to be here in the first place, right? Indigenous midwifery was, was there, was, was part of our communities um, all the way up until it was removed and replaced, you know, with eventually what has become the current model. And we have strong examples of how this can still work and can be an important way of improving community wellness generally. And, you know, Indigenous midwives are expert on our, on our people, and we have important skills and knowledge that can offer cultural approaches to care and, and approaches that are 
um, significant and hold meaning to our um, community people as well. You know, midwives and Indigenous midwives, we, we work within the greater landscape of healthcare in Canada, right? We don't work in isolation either. And um, working as collaborative members on teams, whether that is some people who are placed in the community or not, because we're, we're part of this kind of web of um, service, service providers and care providers, you know, and wherever we find ourselves, there, there are always other people involved. And it's always important to be thinking about those relationships. And when we think of Indigenous midwifery, I think, you know, maybe people have a certain idea of what that is. And, and I always encourage people to really um, get to know, you know, maybe if there's a local practice of midwives or, or get to know the examples and how they work and the finer details of how they work within the larger landscape of maternity care um, and how those relationships are. Because I think that there are always a lot of assumptions of working in isolation or, and that's just not the way that it is done. Just to build on what Evelyn says, to me, it's not a coincidence that birthing facilities and birthing providers in rural areas are concentrated in non-Indigenous communities. So for me, that begs some kind of reconciliatory action. So at this time of TRC, one also has to think about the fact that in Canada, one of the reasons why our infant mortality rate lags behind that of other relatively affluent countries is because we still have this persistent disparity in infant mortality rates where the infant mortality rates for First Nations and Inuit infants are two to four times higher than those for non-Indigenous or the general Canadian population. Basically, there's a need for population-based Indigenous-specific investments in access to birth close to home for First Nations, Inuit, and Métis living in rural and remote areas. Um, and I see three arms of this. The first would be, as Evelyn's mentioned, support Indigenous midwives. And, you know, we've just seen, like, for example, a concrete policy like Laurentian University is underfunded. Like, we need to make sure that the Indigenous midwifery program at Laurentian is not shut down. The second is facilities. And as I mentioned, I think, um, you know, we have very few Indigenous-specific birthing facilities um, in rural and remote areas. So we need a dramatic investment in these facilities. And, you know, we saw one close. I have great confidence in Indigenous midwives um, with the support of other Indigenous primary care providers and health service providers. Um, I always say that with the leadership of Indigenous midwives, like Indigenous nurses, family doctors, and, and specialists and our allies, um, we can work together. So, and then the third piece is we do need urgently a First Nations Inuit Métis Reproductive Maternity Health Survey. I think Canada as a whole urgently needs like a, another maternity experiences survey, which hopefully would be expanded to a reproductive health and maternity experiences survey. Um, it was meant to be a longitudinal survey, but it hasn't happened since 2005, 2006. I think that this survey needs to include First Nations women on reserve, but also to continue to support participation of First Nations relatives who are living off reserve, um, Métis and Inuit. Um, so those are the three ways forward that I see. I 
think what I can also add to that is just, you know, there's always going to be a need for travel for birth because there is always going to be people who need that extra level of care, but it's more the, the routine, you know, we refer to as evacuation for birth or um, policies around traveling for birth and the lack of health services closer to Indigenous communities or in Indigenous communities. It's the degree to which it is happening for low-risk birth that is especially problematic. And there's always going to be a need to travel. And I think this is the thing that people always say. They're like, oh, but, you know, it's such a small number of people. And, and if half of them are leaving the community, then, you know, do you have enough births to sustain a service of any kind? And it's bigger than the birth itself. It impacts the entire community. And if we can look at it through an expanded lens around um, community experiences and, and trauma and Indigenous rights and Indigenous communities having rights to reclaim their their ways and and their own and owning their own health services and things like this, just kind of expanding that view to allow for a deeper conversation about it. Well, thank you so much for joining me today on our podcast and talking about your really important and interesting research. It's been great to talk to you both. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks so much for having us. I'm Kirsten Patrick, Interim Editor-in-Chief of CMAJ. Thanks for listening to this episode of the CMAJ podcast. You can read the article I discussed with my guests today at cmaj.ca. The title of the article is Long Distance Travel for Birthing Among Indigenous and Non-Indigenous Mothers in Canada. Surgery is both an art and a science. We dissect out both on Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. I'm Chad Ball, the co-editor-in-chief of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. And I'm Amir Farouk, associate digital editor for the Canadian Journal of Surgery. Each episode, we are joined by amazing guests, ranging from iconic surgeons from around the world, as well as leaders in other fields such as coaching, accounting, law, and more, as we try to understand how to become better surgeons, physicians, and human beings. Listen to Cold Steel wherever you get your podcasts.